Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from the words of Henry Morris, who lived in the 20th century. And in the middle of that century, he wrote a book called The Bible and Modern Science. That's what we're reading from. And we're studying right now modern science and the flood. We understand the word modern is, uh, well, it's about 70 years from that book, you know. And so things have changed a little bit in the scientific world today, but the criticisms still come, and some of these are still being given. The flood theory, and I use the word, Morris uses the word theory here as a secular scientist might use it. The flood theory seems to offer an acceptable framework within which to explain all the multitudinous data with which geology deals. The main criticism of the theory has always been on the basis of the time element involved. It has been maintained by those few geologists who have adequately considered it and then rejected it, that the immense sedimentary rock beds of the earth and their fossils cannot possibly be attributed only to one great cataclysm, but that their formation must have occupied eons of time. This assertion cannot be proved, however, in the very nature of the case. It is based on the assumption of uniformitarianism, which, however reasonable such an assumption may be normally, obviously cannot have held valid during the time of the flood, if the flood actually occurred. Obviously, in a book of this size, it's impossible to give a complete discussion of all phases of geology and their harmonization with the flood theory, and to explain all phenomena and formations which may at first seem to be inexplicable on this basis. However, there is a book, The Genesis Flood, co-authored by the writer, Mr. Morris, a comprehensive and documented treatment of the more important problems in flood geology. So we want to recommend that book to you also. Just look up on Google, The Genesis Flood. Actually, the flood theory of geology is only slightly less uniformitarian in character, if any, than orthodox geology. The catchword of the uniformitarian view of geology is that the present is the key to the past. However, one does not go very far in the study of historical geology as now interpreted before he sees that uniformitarianism is actually a rather gross misnomer. Present geologic processes such as erosion, sedimentation, volcanism, diastrophism, glaciation, all of these are supposed to be able to account for all stratigraphic and physiographic phenomena. However, if the present character of the activity of these agencies is to be taken as typical, it's obvious they cannot begin to do any such thing. In recent years, in fact, many geologists have recognized the limitations of a consistent uniformitarianism such as had been advocated by practically all geologists since the time of Lyell. They have come to recognize the necessity of a rather large extrapolation, extrapolation from present geologic processes in order to make a reasonable accounting for the existence 
of many of the Earth's geologic phenomena. For example, when in recorded history has there ever been a great outpouring of volcanic lava such as must have formed the terrain extending over great areas of the Pacific Northwest and in many other parts of the world? Where has there ever been observed a mountain uplifted thousands of feet against the huge forces of gravity and friction? What about the great rock ruptures that are supposed to have formed the great rift of Africa? The formation of the great fault scarp on the eastern edge of the Sierra Nevadas? Or the one that formed Grand Teton? Or thousands of others? Almost as spectacular. Speculative geologic history is replete with the erosion of vast peneplains, but where is such to be found in the modern world? Wherein lies the present-day observational basis to account on the basis of uniformity for the great ice sheets, thousands of feet thick, that are supposed to have covered most of Europe and North America many times in past ages? What about the coal beds, which are said to have been formed over long ages as the result of alternate submergences and emergences of peat bogs, the cycle repeated scores of times on the same spot? And this in spite of the fact that, that many fossil tree trunks have been found extending through several coal seams, which presumably formed during one such cycle. Who has actually observed great canyons excavated through solid rock to depths of thousands of feet or the deposition of great silt deposits over great areas and hundreds of feet deep by periglacial winds or the formation of great alluvial plains, hundreds of square miles in area and hundreds of feet deep by any modern river? Such events as these, and many more with which historical geology deals, most definitely cannot be adequately described or explained in terms of their modern counterparts. Even the customary appeal to great ages of time cannot be made in many such instances. Modern volcanoes could never produce the volcanic terrains of many parts of the world, not to mention the tremendous igneous intrusions that have formed the great dikes and sills, the great batholiths, etc., the like of which has never been observed by man in the process of formation. The slight earth movements of the present day, even those accompanying great earthquakes, can by no type of legitimate extrapolation be held to be incipient movements of the gigantic magnitude and intricate complexity that have been experienced by the earth at, at some time or times in the past. The erosion of deep gorges through solid rock by normal river flows, no less than the erosion of vast plains near sea level by ordinary stream action, are, are things which are not only have no observational basis, but which seem to be precluded by basic principles of stream mechanics. All such events can only be explained by admitting that present-day phenomena are not adequate to account for them. 
The flood theory also recognizes this, but postulates only one great physical revolution, chiefly diluvial in character, but also and necessarily accompanied by great volcanic and telluric movements, far eclipsing anything ever experienced by the earth before or since, and perhaps also followed by glaciation of tremendous extent. The so-called uniformity theory professedly ridicules the idea of geologic catastrophe, while actually having to resort to a great number of geological events and phenomena of character and intensity quite outside the scope of anything ever observed in the present age. Since this is the case, it follows that the flood theory is quite as consistent with a true scheme of uniformitarianism as is the theory that is appropriated the name, and in many ways much more so. The flood theory, furthermore, has good basis in written and orally transmitted records, whereas the presently accepted interpretation of historical geology necessarily has no such basis at all. There is surely no intention here to impugn either the abilities or the motives of modern geologists. Most of them are capable, sincere men, diligently, sacrificially, and honestly devoted to the study of science for its own sake. The writer has taken considerable graduate work in geology and has known and studied under some outstanding men in this field. Generally speaking, their adoption of the uniformitary theory has not been because of an anti-religious bias, but because they believed it to be the most scientific approach to geologic study. However, it seems very likely that the effect of their training in the uniformitarian tradition, together with the long-time preponderance of geological opinion, has kept them from ever even considering the possible merits of the flood theory. Most of the results of the past hundred years from 1950 back of geologic study and research would be valid regardless of which theory is correct. None of the great mass of useful geologic data or techniques would have to be discarded if the flood theory were accepted. Only the time element and the evolutionary implications would be sacrificed, and neither of these has any genuine value in geologic research. As far as the evolutionary deductions are concerned, we've already examined somewhat the very dubious character of the entire philosophy of progressive evolution. The fact that the only real evidence left favoring evolution is the evidence from geology, and that all other evidence of biological change is much better evidence of deterioration, that would, by strong implication, make the evolutionary framework of geology exceedingly questionable. The other major item to be revised by geology is the matter of time involved in the formation of the strata. This also will be found to be a very questionable element in the theory, as usually held by orthodox geology. Methods of measuring geologic time and their dependability are briefly discussed later in the chapter. Well, there are also in geology certain very 
positive evidences for the flood, which we should mention. The outstanding of these, probably, are the enormous graveyards of fossils that are found all over the world. Almost without exception, the indications are, from the appearance and manner of preservation of the fossils, that they were buried suddenly. But nothing of the sort is taking place now. It is known that such few fishes as die natural deaths are usually soon devoured in whole or partially by other creatures. In any event, they they do not settle into the ocean or riverbed, but they float on the surface until eaten or decomposed. A modern fish buried whole in sediment normally deposited would be a very unique specimen. When land animals die, their remains are almost always quickly decomposed. This is well substantiated by the fact that it is practically impossible to find bones of modern animals in the process of fossilization. Then how can the ancient fossil deposits be accounted for on the basis of uniformity? The extent and wealth of these deposits is one of the marvels of geology. This fact is so well known that it hardly needs elaboration. Fossil fish beds have been found which extend miles in every direction and contain fish buried in whole shoals by the millions. The fish have every appearance of having been buried alive and with great suddenness. The same is true of the reptilian deposits of the Rockies and the Black Hills, many other parts of the world. The amazing elephant beds of Siberia, the hippopotamus beds of Sicily, the horse beds of France and other parts of Europe, to say nothing of the shells of marine organisms which probably form the greater part of the stratified deposits of the globe, all point to a great worldwide catastrophe in which the world that then was, as the scripture says, being overflowed with water, perished. In no other way can the sudden extinction of the dinosaurs and the great mammals of the past be accounted for. They were certainly not eliminated by the much less hardy creatures of the present order in the struggle for existence. The Siberian deposits of elephants or mammoths should be mentioned further. Literally millions of these animals have been entombed in the vast wildernesses of that land. Some explorers have said that on some of the northern islands particularly, the ground consisted almost entirely of mammoth bones. A regular trade in fossil ivory has afforded livelihood to the natives of this region since at least 900 A.D. In the more northern parts of the country, where the ground is perpetually frozen, some remains of these beasts have been preserved whole, with even the skin and hair intact. From the evidence of the congested blood in the blood vessels of the elephants so preserved, scientists say they must have died by drowning, in spite of the fact that the modern elephant is a very strong and long swimmer. The remains of the last meal consisting of elephant grass and other plants now utterly foreign to the region, have been found in their stomachs. What is true of the mammoths is also true to a lesser extent of many other animals, 
whose fossil remains have been marvelously preserved in Siberia. This is especially true of the rhinoceros, who is now as much a stranger to Siberia as the elephant. These animals were very evidently then living in a land where the climate was mild and afforded an abundance of vegetation. This was absolutely necessary to support such hordes of the animals as lived there. But there is no sign of such climate or vegetation now. That they were suddenly buried by a great flood, which was accompanied by an almost instantaneous and a very extreme change of climate, is equally evident. No slowly encroaching glacial age or any other tenet of evolutionary geology can account for these amazing finds. The Siberian mummies are an especially vivid illustration of one outstanding fact that paleontology unquestionably reveals, that is, that at one time in the history of the globe there was a worldwide temperate climate. The remains of coral reefs formed by sea creatures that can live only in warm waters have been found so far north that it is believed now that they underlie the very poles themselves. Tropical animals have been found in large numbers as fossils not only in Siberia but in Greenland, Alaska, and practically every region in the world. Fossil ferns and other tropical and temperate vegetation have likewise been found in large numbers in the polar regions. Even in the very coldest region of the globe, the great continent of Antarctica, extensive coal beds have been found, extending almost to the South Pole itself. Geologists also believe there have been one or more periods of Earth history when large areas of the globe were submerged by great ice sheets. There is sound basis for suggesting that the supposed evidences for these ice ages could be better interpreted in terms of water action, especially the earlier ones. The glacial till from the last ice sheet, however, is of a different type from the others and probably does indicate true glacial conditions. The cause of this ice age or ages, however, as well as the cause of the worldwide temperate climate or climates preceding them, has never yet been determined. It constitutes one of the most perplexing unsolved problems of geology. The principle of uniformity seems completely incapable of supplying the answer. A worldwide temperate climate preceding the flood, however, with the latter possibility followed by extensive glaciation, fits well into the framework of flood geology. Well, we have another evidence of uh, flood geology in the next pages that we'll read. And, and then uh, some more proofs of the flood. We'll do this a couple more times and then move on to the Bible and history. Quite a book, quite a book. I'm sorry that it's kind of hidden away somewhere. I, I hope that you'll rediscover it. Now, some of the things he's talking about may have been challenged scientifically, and there could be other answers that have emerged, in which case you'll get a person from a disciple of Morris, perhaps, to explain that. But this was one of the original 
attacks on the scientific theories that were just deluging the uh, the Bible, it seemed. It seemed like the Bible was, was going under, but we know that it cannot. And I understand that if you just believe God, you don't have to have any of this scientific backup. That's fine. But I, I love seeing when the Bible is confirmed before men who thought they had the answers. Enough, enough. I've talked enough. Do look around my site and uh, get in touch with me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. And I'll tell you all about our Zoom meetings, too, for men and for women. Bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And this audio is being released on August the 8th, 2022. Lord willing, we'll get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.